1: Well, well, then. Oh, the cold weather must be starting to get to me. Well, anyways, the last song you heard was quite appropriately called Instant Replay. The artist was Tracks for Days. And then before that was the song Ginger Jumps the Fence by The Herbalizer. And then Ultrasonic Sound by Hive. And then Dreams in America by Luca Bloom began that set. It is now 4.24, and you are listening to Freeform Radio right here on WCBN, FM Ann Arbor. And, well, do please stay tuned, because in about six minutes, the show Living Writers will be on the air. And, well, I hope you enjoyed listening to the music today as much as I have enjoyed compiling it and playing it for you. And, well, I have time to squeeze in one last song, so why not? Coming up next is the song It's All Right by David Anthony. Everyone have a good Christmas, Hanukkah, and New Year's. And do be safe and try not to get sick.
2: Good afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel, and you're listening to Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Uh, Today, I'm joined in the studio, very luckily, by two ladies, lovely ladies. Um, Valerie Lakin is here. She's currently on tour with her debut novel, Dream House, and also Amanda Uli, the executive director of 826 Michigan. Welcome.
3: Thank you. Thank you. It's great
2: to see you guys here um, on this sort of gray gray day here in Ann Arbor. Um, You brighten it up.
3: It's a good day to be inside (laughs) listening to the radio. It is, isn't it? (laughs) It's
2: quite cozy down here in the basement level of things. nice. (laughs) And little talking heads and um, synthesizers. It's never a bad thing. Um, So to start things off, uh, I'm going to read Valerie Lakin's biography from the back of her book, Dream House. Valerie Lakin received her MFA in creative writing from the University of Michigan. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, including Plowshares, the Chicago Tribune, Tribune, and the Antioch Review. And she has received a Pushcart Prize, the Missouri Review Editor's Prize, and two Hopwood Awards. She teaches in the creative writing program at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. So welcome home, Valerie.
4: Thank you. It's <laughs> great to be back in Ann Arbor.
2: And, and now, and people must be thinking, now why? Amanda, Amanda, why are you here? Why am I here? <laughs> yes. So can you tell us? Tell of us course. all. <laughs> and tell us a little bit about 826 Michigan, if sure. you don't mind.
3: Sure. Um, so 826 Michigan is a writing and tutoring center for kids, and we serve about 2,000 kids a year with a whole range of programs um, based on our belief that writing is important for every single child, um, and that goes for kids who are really struggling to write, um, who say things to us like they hate writing and writing is hard, and for students who love writing and they maybe don't get enough opportunity to do, to do that writing in school. So we know that writing is important for everyone. One-on-one attention is a huge part of how that writing and how that learning happens, um, and that everything we do is free. So we do totally free programs with volunteers.
2: I oh, that's thinking. that's amazing! So all people who care and love writing and reading and exactly. and, and you have a robot shop, don't you? We a do. storefront with robots? Is we
3: do. That's one of the crazy ways that we raise money for our free programs. <laughs> so we have Liberty Street Robot Supply and Repair, which is just um, down the road from WCBN here, and we re- actually raise about ten percent of our operating budget on robot supplies and sales. So that works out pretty well. And everything else, uh, all the other money that we bring in is is related to grants or donations. Or fundraising events. So we have a big one of those coming up, as you know. Tomorrow. tomorrow, Yes. Thursday evening at the Michigan Theater. Exactly. Thursday evening, uh, May 14th, we have a pre-release screening of the film Away We Go, which was co-written by Dave Eggers and his wife, Venda Levita. And uh, Dave Eggers is actually the person who founded 826 Valencia, which is the, the, was the very first writing center that has the same beliefs that we do. And, and that's they,
2: in San Francisco, right? That's right. Pirates, is it, there? They have a out pirate there? store. Yep.
3: They have a pirate <laughs> store. And there, so there are seven 826 writing centers in the country. And we all have a quirky storefront, and we all do the same kind of work with, with young people.
2: Was Michigan the last one to add into the fold? Do you know America? Actually,
3: no. no. Boston was more Boston. recent than, okay. than we were. Yeah. Oh, well that's awesome. Yeah. And uh,
2: and I bet you're ramping up for summer.
3: We are. We do so many programs in the summer. People often think we're less busy, but actually because students are out of school, it's the perfect time to reach them and make sure that they're not losing that love of learning and literacy and writing in the summer. So oh. we do more. That's, cre- yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. My, my neighbor Pike, he
2: just, um, he came back from being at eight, two, six the other week and was mm. telling me about the writing exercise. So it's really, oh, that's lovely. Great thing. Yeah, good. <laughs> um. Okay, so there's another big reason why Amanda's here, and it's very exciting, because we're going to do a giveaway of tickets. Well, Amanda is. Amanda so kindly brought three pairs of tickets to the uh, film to see Away we go tomorrow night. And so the first three callers at 734-763-3500... We'll take the first three callers, and you will be the lucky winners of seeing the movie and hearing Dave Eggers talk as well, right? Exactly. We'll give a, a Q&A
3: at the end. He will be here for the film, and then afterwards, uh, the film critic from the Metro Times, Jeff Myers, is going to sort of moderate an audience Q&A with Dave Eggers, so we'll sort of get the behind-the-scenes on how uh, the movie was written and, you know, other questions for him. So, oh, that's great. And really he's fun. he's always a good
2: good time. Maybe absolutely. A, a great absolutely talker. Yeah. Um, and so, those tickets—if you're one of the lucky winners—they'll be held for you and at your, by your name at Will Call. Exactly. So, uh, call us. Call now, and home. you'll talk to Alex Bell Hodge, the phenomenal engineer, All three thirty five hundred. All right. Well, Amanda, right. thanks for being here. Thanks so here. much for having me, and I thanks for running A two Michigan.
3: Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs>
2: All right. So now, shifting to our writer du jour, (laughs) Valerie Lakin. Valerie, you just drove in
4: from Wisconsin, didn't you? I did. I live in Milwaukee now. I lived for uh, 11 years in Ann Arbor, and the book is set in Ann Arbor, so it's really fun to come back here and be able to to talk about the book in in what feels like my hometown. Yes.
2: I I was reading on your website, ValerieLakin.com, that... Uh, that it took
4: seven years with this book. Is that, is that true? Sadly, it is true. I wish that I could say that I'd written it more quickly. And uh, to be honest, there were probably about three or four years of very intense work in the middle there. But it really, I started the book um, in 2000 or 2001 um, while I was finishing graduate school here and then uh, worked on it more or less for, for five or six years and then about a year of revision. So I think in the end, it adds up to about seven years.
2: And and with that, uh with the process of that, um, Valerie, um, was that a a chunk of that time? Was it was it researching as well? Um because well let's see. There's there's some ways stories happen, right? Like uh like you you find the story or the story finds you in some way. Um, is there a backstory on Dream House?
4: Yeah, unfortunately there is a backstory. I don't know if you knew this or not, but um The the story is set in downtown Ann Arbor in on the old West Side actually just the very near part of the old West Side, Um, and it has to do with a with a a couple who buy a historic fixer upper that's in really bad shape and they have these you know plans to not just sort of rekindle their their troubled flagging marriage but you know to 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 reconstruct this home and make it into a sort of you know a a beautiful place and a good investment and about two weeks after they move in um, a neighbor comes across the street and tells them uh, the history of the house which is that a murder occurred there and that is the kernel of truth in the book and that's a story that came to me (laughs) immediately to me when my neighbors came across the street and told us that a murder had occurred in our home um, which was not good news. I can't say it was good news. <laughs> yeah,
2: so these are. this is a time when the story found you in a way. Were you looking for a project at that time, Valerie, or was it that um, this idea just wouldn't let
4: go of you? That's a good question. I'm, at the time, I was writing. I was writing short fiction, um, and I was... You know, wouldn't we all like to write a novel at some point? But I never really felt that I had a story big enough for that, and I was really intimidated by the prospect of writing a novel. Um, and because
2: what did that mean, like when you were, because cause you were writing, because uh, your short stories have appeared in in Ploughshares and in well, I was listing them off mm-hmm. in your biography, and and they're you know, I've I've looked at some of them on your website as well, and, mm-hmm. and they're great. So you've you built this collection of short stories dealing with disability
4: yeah, as well. That's right. And um, and that will come out in another, about a year and a half. It's called Separate Kingdoms. It'll come out from Harper Perennial in about, we don't have a, a publication date, but it is under contract to come out in about a year and a half.
2: Did they, did they ask you for a novel first? Is that why Dreamhouse came out first if you already, or was this collection, were you still finishing the short story collection as well?
4: I, uh, when I sold the contract, the story collection was mostly done and the novel was oh. only about a third of the way done and um but they decided that they wanted to publish the novel first I think maybe just out of business concerns story story collections have a hard time selling and I think they had some strategy for I don't some some crazy strategy in mind that I hope pans out for them but I have no idea I don't really follow the business side of it very well a fleet
2: of hot air balloons (laughs) for the launch
4: (laughs) exactly so you know so I didn't go looking for this story you know it's just something that sort of fell into my lap and I uh, you know, when we heard the news that this murder had occurred in our home, we were, the, the worst part of, of the news was that our neighbor who told it to us didn't know the facts. He just said, oh, I don't know when it happened or how or who it was. And so we had to go back home with this vague knowledge that, OK, there was a murder that happened here somewhere. We don't know how or under what conditions or how long ago and so in every kind of cracked piece of plaster we were imagining bullet holes and the the closet floor was inexplicably painted red which you know just didn't help us sleep at night Or
2: why why was there paneling on the wall
4: exactly (laughs) and so you know we spent the first month or two just kind of playing this real life game of clue you know just sort of imagining you know did it happen in the foyer with an axe or in the garage with a chainsaw you know we just didn't know and it was excruciating and um And and, um, I I have to say it bothered me a little less than it bothered my husband, but it did. It bothered us both, and we were ashamed of it. We didn't tell people at first, and we just didn't know what to do with this news. And I think that's...
2: Well, it was such an odd delivery as well.
4: Yeah, I mean, it was really... It's almost
2: like he wanted to unsettle you.
4: I know. I've often wondered about his motives in that. I mean, and then what was interesting was that a month or so later, another neighbor stopped by, and this very nice older woman who said that she had been a mail carrier for many years in our neighborhood, and she said, oh, I know the history of every house. And I sort of hesitated, and I said, well, then do you know the history of our house? And she she kind of looked me up and down. It was a completely different sort of exchange. She kind of scanned my face to see if I really knew what I was asking and, and if I really wanted this news. And I sort of, you know, indicated that I had a—you know, that I had a—, a, a an inkling of what had happened. And, and she said, well, yeah, you know, there was there was a, a shooting here. It was very unfortunate. And she told me the circumstances of the, of the crime. And it turns out that it was a domestic homicide. And, um, you know, I think that domestic homicides are really different from most other kinds of murders, I mean, for a vi- variety of reasons. But, you know, the most important was that it wasn't just some random intruder. Um, and I think domestic homicides are really emotionally and morally complex. You know, I, I think nobody could feel 100% right or wrong in those situations because they involve someone you love. So even if that person did something horrible, you loved them before that moment, so you're not going to feel the same way about them that you would toward a random killer who walks into your house. So, um, you know, so hearing the news that way really changed um, my sense of the house and, and made me really curious about this family and really curious about this person who had committed this crime, and I was really it was a great mystery for me to try to figure out what would compel somebody to do that a mystery. Mm-hmm.
2: Let's take a short break, Valerie, and we'll come back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Valerie Lakin, her debut novel, Dreamhouse. We'll be back. up everyone, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T Hetzel, and today on the program Valerie Lakin and her debut novel, Dream House. Um so Valerie, um we've we've got to the point where you've you've discovered this this mystery and, and so then you decide to write about it. Um so what what was your process with the writing of this? Because you you had facts to work from. Um, but this isn't, this is obviously fiction. Um, so how did you, how did you balance that aspect of like the desire to research and to know what really happened? And then how did you know when to, um, either pull back and let the imagination steer where the story was going to go?
4: I,
3: or is that just it, me?
4: Not at all. No, it's a great question. I should have a ready set answer. No, um. no,
2: it's better. I, no, don't do that. And I'm not doing my job right. Maybe you have ready set answers for everything.
4: I, you know, I think that I, um, I started off with this just curiosity about this family and this this crime that had happened in their home, and what it would feel like to be. Uh, a member of a family in in which a domestic you know homicide had happened, and what would compel a young man to this eighteen year old boy to commit this this murder uh, and then he he promptly um turned himself in he walked down to the corner um shop and you know put the gun on the counter and said, "Call the police, please I always picture Washtenaw Dairy at that moment and you are exactly right, so those of you who live or know live around or know the Washtenaw Dairy, you um you're right there near the scene of the crime and near the scene of my novel um and uh, so I I just—I I think there was just the human part of me of living in this house and wanting to understand what had happened in my house and, and wanting to, I think, come to terms with it and reconcile um, myself with the fact that I was living in this house, that, that it had suddenly scared me a lot and made me feel ashamed, and, and then to reconcile it with the fact that, well, some other family had lived here, and it had been home to them, and they had surely loved this house the way that anybody loves their home, and— um, you know, I think that a lot of times when we buy older homes, we don't want to think about what has happened there before we move in. And, you know, realtors always tell you take down your personal photos and things like that when you're trying to sell your house because families want to imagine that that nobody's really lived there before. But that's just not the case. And it seems also places um, absorb energy yeah. as well
2: because, I mean, I think so many things we can't possibly understand in our existence, right? And and that might be one of them, that there's energy within Places.
4: Yeah, I mean, and I'm not a very sort of mystical person. Then why are you wearing those crystals, Valerie? <laughs> so i so i you know I, I never for once felt the house house was haunted and i didn't have these these real feelings feelings of actual fear it was just a more kind of unsettled feeling about this home that we had just sunk a lot of money into and so just on a personal level i wanted to understand what had happened and then because i was a writer i was you know just kicking this around as a good story and um i think you know i was very intimidated at first to try and write the story because the the family um who lived there when the crime happened is an African American family, and I just felt like I, I wanted to tell their story, but I didn't know if I, you know, as a as a white American had had the right or could. It just seemed very audacious to try to imagine how would I get inside the head of and speak in the voice of of an African American family um, convincingly. And so, and
2: a different era of time yes. in, in the city before you had come to Ann Arbor yourself.
4: Exactly, so a, whole,
2: a different scope.
4: Yeah, exactly. They lived there during the, the mostly during the 1980s, um, and um, so I knew that I wanted to braid their story together with the story of uh, you know sort of alter egos of my husband and, and me, um, and and then I also kind of introduced a few other characters who also get woven through the plot line. And so you know I had to do a lot of research at first to try to just feel that I could own up to their story and do justice to their story and try to write um, the 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 man who committed the crime Walker Price to try to write his character's voice in a convincing way and so what was that research then Valerie Because actually I was thinking of researching you
2: know the, the the true crime about the actual like the records at the Ann Arbor Police
4: Department or but but how did you do this research for Walker? well if some of it was researching crimes and, and and talking to um attorneys who who um knew a lot of, a lot more than i did about sentencing laws at that time so that i would understand sort of what kind of sentence he would get where he would end up and things like that um and then i did a lot of of um research of just reading prison memoirs um the writings of prisoners and recent ex-cons mainly because this character lived for 18 years and then spent the the next 18 years of his life in prison um and that's
2: true and we should say that the time that we spend with this character is when he comes out of prison so it's not any of the the other story really exactly
4: yeah yeah some of his family history gets sort of filtered into the novel but his but the present action of the novel mostly takes place once this young couple buy the house and then he gets out of prison and those those events sort of coincide he begins lurking around the home he's trying to rebuild his uh his life but his family is afraid of him and his his family has been destroyed by this event they lost the home because of his crime and he feels very responsible but he also isn't quite willing to admit to himself or to them that what he did was wrong he feels that he was justified and um and so I really you know I thought when I first started writing the book I sort of imagined that maybe he would be still very dangerous and he may be dangerous in certain ways but um, the more that I wrote his character, the more that I just kind of came to really love him, and I kind of really fell in on his side. Um, and um, I think he has a lot in common with with the main character, the the sort of my alter ego. And and I just um, and he's a man who's just searching for some dignity, as we as we all do. And, and I think that he, you know to him, this home was everything, and he took a lot of pride in it. And um, it, it's very hard for him now to, to see this young couple kind of tearing. Everything out of the home as they try to remodel it. This this is whole that's what's left of his family history is in that home, and and this new couple are just sort of ripping it out and throwing it in a dumpster, and you know it, that's very You're just upsetting. discarding it. Yeah, know. yeah.
2: And and so so basically, see if I'm understanding this correctly, Valerie. With with the um, when you were looking at the the actual the history of this story, um, you 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 looked at the facts, but kind of. Pulled down like, sort of the the shade at some point, and said, "Just imagination, go forward. This isn't, um, you know, a documentary of of something that. Well, because obviously the house didn't. Uh, well, I don't <laughs> want to do a spoiler there. Let me see. Hmm, maybe I won't say that. Um, but uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I I still don't understand wh- at what point did the alter ego you meet up with these
4: uh, characters you imagined because the the person who committed the crime wasn't named walker for example right 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 no i mean very early on i knew that that everything that i was writing was fiction and so i was curious about the truth but only to the extent that it would serve a good story and so you know i i, I well, well said <laughs> um i tried to just to just let me to, to tell a good story and, and to use the research as a means of getting the right voice and, and making things plausible, but not necessarily as a means of getting at the actual truth. And in fact, I resisted um, act, doing the final actual research of of sort of exactly what happened on the crime scene um, until after the book was completely finished because I I felt that this family had— Um, suffered enough and I didn't want to really truly steal their story the only story of theirs that I stole was what my neighbors told me I stole the rumor and then from that um, did enough research to build a plausible situation and wrote that situation which was made up so there I've I've spoiled it no
2: (laughs) (laughs) no no you haven't at all no no that makes that makes perfect sense that's and that's what I was wondering if that's what what you had done how you had created this um this story um and so how do you feel when people are talking about it as if it's a ghost story i have to say that makes me
4: uncomfortable <laughs> um i mean i think that I, charlie I can under- baxter no i, I love what Ch- <laughs> i love what charles baxter wrote but, but you know it, it's um and it's beautiful and i'm, I'm so thrilled. he wrote something like
2: um let's see on, on the cover sure. he he says a perfectly plausible
4: and rational ghost story sexy sharp-eyed and deeply haunted so that i love you know when he wrote me that i i flipped i think that's fantastic and i was so charmed and and honored um, and I think that 's true, I think it is what he said, but what, you know the trouble is when people don 't see perfectly plausible and rational in front of ghost story, and they just say, "Oh, a ghost story um, it 's not a ghost story unless in the fact that every one of us is haunted yeah exactly that 's the idea that this home is haunted in in a in a plausible, rational way in the sense that you know, this new couple moves in, and, and they become haunted by the truth of what has happened there, the history of what has happened there, but there are no ghosts running around. And I think that that's exactly what Charlie captured, so I was thrilled to see him write that. Um, you know, but it's it, I, I, I struggled with this because, of course, it's a story that um, is set in a scary house and involves a murder. So, you know, the two things that I always had to say before I, you know, described the book to anyone was were— it's not a mystery and it's not a ghost story, but um, it has elements of both. It has elements of what it feels like to live in a space that, that scares you a little um, and elements of, well, not so much who done it. We know very early on who did the crime, but we don't know why he did it. And we don't know um, you know, what the circumstances of the event were. And so there there are certainly... So there's an
2: unraveling in that sense. There's that mystery is coming, is being unraveled.
4: Yeah. The mystery of character, really.
2: Because it seems like you're driving at more human elements.
4: I hope so. I try to.
2: Well, well that, so how did how did you? Um, let's see, in the New York Times book review, because didn't didn't they review it under the the mystery banner as well? Yeah. So yeah. so did you call up and say no? <laughs> nice job. <laughs>
4: <laughs> it was a beautiful review, you know, and 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 they said wonderful things that I was just so honored to hear. And um, and the drawing that they did, I, know, I saw they, on
2: your website. That was pretty. Im- Can you yeah, describe that for us?
4: <laughs> <laughs> they put a like a drawing up of of me, sort of as if I were in in a on a on a crime scene on a lineup. What do they call it when you're when you're being identified by the. It's always like there's that front shot and then the side view, yeah, right? It's like a mug shot. A mug shot, yeah. Uh, and so, you know, what how many... a great use for an author photo. <laughs> I know how many people get to say they've got their mug shot in the New York Times. I feel like Nick Nolte or Winona Ryder. <laughs> <laughs> Rock star Valerie Lake is joining us today on Living Writers. Um, so, but no, I didn't mind at all. I mean, it was a lovely review. I mean, it's a little awkward to find yourself pushed into a genre that you didn't anticipate. Um, have you been meeting with any mystery groups? Because I saw on your coming tour where you'll go out to the West Coast, yeah. there's even some, you know, mystery and more. Yeah, like one shop. of the stores is, yeah, um, and I don't mind at all, you know, and I think I have heard, you know, really nice responses from readers who say, who say you know, I picked it up for this reason and then actually turned out and, and I loved it for a different reason. So I'm happy to... To, to it, I think the book can appeal to a wide swath of readers, and and that was something that I consciously set out to do early on because I, I I didn't want this just to be a story about oh a suburban woman buys a home and you know gets her dreams thwarted. I wanted it to have you know some of that story, <laughs> and some of the of the you know the the, the crime and some of the uh, the family that had lived there in the '80s. I wanted it to be a blend of several different kinds of stories and really different kinds of characters.
2: With the research, Valerie, I was just wondering, because of thinking about the, the scope of the writing of the book, too, Did, did um, how were you able to sort of um, kind of beat that down at a certain point, or was that unnecessary? Because I'm kind of thinking there's, maybe with research, it would be kind of exciting one thing leading to another, especially in the realm of, um, like, true crime or... Um, I don't know I hope I don't sound too bloodthirsty no. but this idea of like maybe it isn't something that you're familiar with and so this whole new world is opening up before you um, just like if you work in a restaurant suddenly you're, you, you're, you're um, privileged to see this whole community like how a hierarchy of things like so if walking to an, into a police department I'd imagine is, is similar um, so how were you able to say okay enough with the research I'm just going to enter into the, the characters I don't know you
4: know it's it's a little like it's a little like childbirth you know you, I think you black out how it happened after and you're just glad it's over with that's true <laughs> I mean I could see I could
2: see how that might be great okay um, you know then I'm going to let that go we'll just let the, the research part go you're listening to Living Writers today on the show we've got Valerie Lakin and her book Dream House. Um, it's WCBN FM Ann Arbor I'm T Hetzel we'll be back Welcome back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today Valerie Lakin is here. If you're just joining us, it's been great, and I'm glad you're, you're tuning in. Um, Valerie, thanks for being here. For thanks for having me. Driving from Wisconsin, you're just off, off the pavements. Yeah, I just
3: drove thanks. right in.
4: <laughs> and you're in town for Book Fest, aren't you, which is this weekend? It is. I'm um, on a panel this Saturday at 3 o'clock with um, Colson Whitehead and Steve Amick and uh keith taylor is the moderator so it's a it's a panel on place in fiction i think at three o'clock in the kalamazoo room of the michigan league oh
2: that'll be great that what a great panel i mean steve amick he's friend of the show keith taylor friend of the show colson whitehead soon to be because he's going to be on later yes oh that's
4: fantastic i love
2: Um, his work and, you know, I'm sure he loves yours too, Valerie, <laughs> so I'll just say that, you know, I love yours. Um, and we earlier in the program, if you're just joining us, Amanda Uly, uh from a 826 Michigan was here. And tomorrow, Dave Edgars is going to be in town at the Michigan Theater um, for a benefit for 826 Michigan, which if you don't know about it, it's just a great place. Um, kids from, um, you know, Wee Tots to, you know, not kids, high schoolers. You have people, you know, young writers, go there to write. Um, and so uh, they're they're throwing a benefit tomorrow at Michigan Theater with the movie Away We Go, which uh, Dave Eggers and his wife Vida, uh co-wrote. And uh, Dave Eggers will be uh, doing a Q and A afterwards. So we've got three pairs of tickets, and Alex Hodge is here on the phones. So if you would like a pair of tickets to go see Away We Go, um, Give us a call. The number 734-763-3500. Um, 734-763-350. 763 right. So now on with the program. Without further ado, um, so Valerie, will you read um a bit from Dream House
4: for us? Sure. I'll just read um the first couple pages, maybe. That's um, great. Uh this is this. This is from the prologue to the book, and it's uh, set in July of 1987. If you took away the police tape and the squad cars and the neighbors murmuring in a cluster on the sidewalk, it would look like the kind of house little kids draw, a wooden two-story box topped with the steep triangle of a full attic and a chimney tilting slightly from the ridge line of the roof. The blistered paint was the gray-blue of dishwater, And there were no dormers or bay windows or Victorian details, just that blunt workman's box and triangle, fronted by a wooden porch that sagged toward the street. Some kids might scribble coils of of smoke above the chimney or plant flowers near the windows, but these windows were bare and dusty, reflectionless, and the chimney was quiet. It was ninety degrees and humid even at twilight. Jay opened the door of his work van to let in more air. The house was only eight eight blocks away from his one-room apartment over in Ann Arbor's student ghettos, which meant he had probably gone past the place lots of times without noticing it. These old clabbered houses all looked alike, crowded on their lots in orderly rows, but now this one, cordoned off, had gone and distinguished itself. The neighbors on the sidewalk glanced up at Jay's open door, at his foot kicked out on the running board. He adjusted his side mirror to take them in. Always the rubberneckers. They crowded around every job site, outraged that catastrophe dared strike so close to home in a house so like theirs. Tonight it was an old white guy with a collie, two obese women squinting and gasping, and a bony, bug-eyed black girl who kept crumpling over into tears. What they wanted to know was how he was connected to the house, and whether, unlike the police or the ambulance guys, he would tell them about the murder.
2: That's thank you. (sighs) <laughs> i love the part about the coils of smoke coming up from the chimney Too, oh. <laughs> that's great thanks uh, so um valerie with um uh thinking a little bit about your your life as a writer <laughs> i feel like we should have some heavy theme music that sure, swings shall I lie in back and, uh, on a couch? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tell us about <laughs> your first story. <laughs> no, really, can you remember it? No, um, do
4: you, uh, do, I remember do you have a story? moment when you thought, I am a writer? Or... Um, I don't know if I had a moment when I thought I was a writer. I remember the first story that I tried to write seriously that I actually finished. I was probably 25, and it was about... It was a date in which two people go on the Mississippi River and float down the river on a boat and talk. It was the worst story ever. It had no plot, no conflict. Um, It was all conversation. It was like a, I don't know, it was like a, was it your Samuel Beckett tribute or something? <laughs> <laughs> I wish, I wish I'd had the wherewithal to, to try and do a tribute to Samuel Samuel Beckett. No, it was just bad. It was just bad. But you know, but you finished it. I did, and I think that you know that was the difference for me was that um, for a long, you know, all my life growing up, I loved to write, but I came from a family that was, you know, more or less just a sort of had the mentality of a working class family. You know, you just work hard, you do your ordinary stuff in your ordinary life. And, um, you know, that we didn't keep books in the house. There weren't really—my parents weren't readers. Um, I did have one sister who was a big reader and kind of turned me on to books, and that was very important. But, uh, you know, it just seemed ridiculous, this notion that anybody normal from Rockford, Illinois, could become a writer. That seemed like a very pompous goal. And so, I, you know, I always was playing with words and and writing things secretly in journals and in notebooks, but I never showed them to anybody, and I didn't take classes or do things like that until— I went to the University of Iowa as an undergrad, in, you know, for college, and I partially I know now that that I was drawn there because of the writers' workshop. I mean, I, at the time I knew they had this famous workshop, but while I was there, I was too shy and intimidated to go anywhere near it. You know, I was just I took one or two very introductory writing classes, but they, I just was way too scared by the whole prospect.
2: But subconsciously, maybe that's I'm why you sure. chose that university. No, that I know university. I did.
4: Yeah, I know I did um but this is like pull out the couch oh i know exactly (laughs) this is cheaper than therapy but so you know so i was always tinkering with things but i never finished anything and i think that that's the difference that when you can start to really finish stories or poems or novels whatever it is that you want to be writing then you're really a writer and until then you're you're kind of tinkering you're kind of like that guy at the party who can play the first five bars of any song and can't play anything else (laughs) that was me (laughs) And so, so, but at at
2: 25, you had this moment where you wrote this river story Mm -hmm. and it actually finished and it, did it have that sort of that rhythm where I, and it kind of finished up on 22
4: pages or so, did it have sort of that feel? In uh, my mind, I'm sure it did, but I'm, if I saw it now, I'd be horrified. Um, But no, and then I started to, um, I, I, I was living in Ann Arbor then, maybe I was 26 or so and I... Was this before or after Moscow? This was after Moscow. Yeah, so okay. um, there was a gap in there when I lived abroad. We can come back to that. I don't know. But so I, once I was back in Ann Arbor, um, and I and I was just sort of going by a coffee shop and saw this sign that said, you know, do you want to learn how to write? And I said, yes, I do. And so I signed up for this sort of private workshop that a writer named Josh Henkin was teaching at that time, and he was a graduate of the Michigan uh, MFA program. And I started taking these workshops with him, and they were wonderful, and I met all sorts of really great writers who I'm still friends with now. Nick Arvin is one of them. Um, Amy Walsh, Mary Jean Babich, uh, Babbick, um, and uh, Don Lystra. Lots of great people went through the program or his little little mini program, I guess I should call it. And then some of us went on to um, do MFAs elsewhere. So, so
2: the MFA didn't bring you to Ann Arbor. You were, you were you found your way here.
4: Yeah, I had already come to Ann Arbor um, to do, I had planned on doing a Ph.D. in Slavic literature, in Russian and Polish literature. that's what
2: you had your master's in
4: then. Uh, yeah, well, I, I came here to do the master's. I, I had, um, so here, I guess okay. we should rewind a little bit. Okay, let's. <laughs> so, you know, when I was an undergraduate, because I was too afraid to be a creative writing person, I uh, majored in Russian and in English and then when I graduated I had no idea what kind of job I could ever get with those majors and I was not one of those really put together kind of graduates so I um went to Russia <laughs> and I um I started working as a translator in Moscow for a couple of years well that sounds very put together to it me. does but I, it was all by accident I just stumbled into one thing after another and it was really really fun this was during the early 90s when um you know um Gorbachev was falling out of power. They had the the coup in the summer that I first got there, and um, Yeltsin, coups are always fun. They're always fun. My mom didn't think it was very fun. She was glad that I was I was actually not in Moscow during the coup, and she was really glad about that. But, but you were really alive. Right? I, it felt like it. Yeah, it was really, as they say on the SNL spoof of public radio, it was good times. <laughs> um. So you know. So I had. I think that. Um, So I lived in in Moscow for uh, about a couple years, and then I lived in uh, Eastern Europe after that, in Prague and in Krakow. And um, I knew all that time that I really liked working with language, and I was too afraid to say that I wanted to write. So So, so I just did whatever else I could do with language.
2: Were you keeping journals, though? Were you doing lots
4: of yeah that, that type of writing and so he seen... I was but I was just not very you know not very dedicated you know I would just write a few things and then I would do something else <laughs> was... go for a pint I okay. just didn't know how to write I really didn't know what is what made something a story I didn't understand anything about plot or character development I just didn't understand any of that I just really liked language
2: and you it seems though um that you may have delved into if with Russian literature uh, deconstructing m- many famous stories or, or yeah. and so in having a love of that is is that true? Is that something that informs how you're writing short stories and then maybe Dreamhouse
4: as well? Um, I'm sure that that studying Russian literature and, and some of Polish literature definitely helped. Um, and just being forced in grad school to read so much, it just, you know, you, you at some point you do start to discover patterns and you start to realize, oh, scratch my head, there's a plot here and here's what makes something work as a story, here's what increases tension in the reader's mind and here's what makes them read forward or what doesn't, you know. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I definitely um, fell in love with with all of the russian authors but especially you know people like gogol and um dostoevsky tolstoy chekhov is a big writer for me and babel and um among the polish writers that i really love i mean i, I really love um gombrowicz is a very funny writer and um bruno Schultz is one of my all-time favorite short story writers he's a writer that not enough people read um but he's a beautiful beautiful short story writer um so i felt really lucky that i got to have that kind of sort of literary education Um, before I started really studying how to write I was studying literature for a long time but you know along the way I realized that um, while I was taking these workshops I was trying to do my Russian literature PhD and I started to realize that I was having a lot more fun writing stories than I was you know having fun reading about stories. What you were doing with Josh Henkin. Exactly uh, yeah and and so those workshops just really opened my eyes to um, something that I realized I wanted to do. And I, and I felt like even if I can't succeed at this, I, I want to dedicate myself to trying to write. And so gradually I, I dropped out of the Ph.D. program in Russian literature and switched over to the MFA program in creative writing. And uh, people often ask me, you know, oh, do you regret that? Oh, do you regret? You, you know, I, I was ABD. I, I went really far into the program and uh oh what does abd oh, mean sorry abd means everything or all but dissertation oh, oh so that makes i had done sense. all my coursework all my exams <laughs> everything all i had to do was write you know 200 page thesis which sounds like torture to me it was really a lot it was a lot more than i could do <laughs> um yeah, they're just geniuses in that in that program they're so smart and i just felt like I, it wasn't for me well well Thank goodness, because we've yeah. got Dream House, then.
2: <laughs> and and uh, and we'll we're going to take a short break, Kay. and we'll be back. Uh, you've been listening uh, to Valerie Lakin and and her book Dream House. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be back.
0: There's a man with conviction, and although he's getting old, Mr. Browning has a prediction.
2: in at dawn and join us for living writers <laughs> today Valerie Lakin and dreamhouse her debut novel um, and just another quick mention I think we have we have one pair of tickets left so if you're listening and uh, and you have an open uh, spot on your dance card tomorrow, um, we've got a pair of tickets uh, courtesy of 826 Michigan and Amanda Uly, um for their benefit tomorrow. Away We Go is the film and Dave Edgar's, um the writer will be there. Um, so the number, 734-763-3500. And now back to Valerie. <laughs> um, so Valerie, um, Alice Monroe has said a story is not like a road to follow it's more like a house yeah and and so that seems like something that that you said that you you really believe in
4: I really believe that um I think it's such a smart thing uh, it, what's interesting to me is that just before that quote she actually says that she doesn't always or even usually read stories from beginning to end she sometimes just starts anywhere which does freak